Well, as Paul mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Lanier Wood is uh, with us today to share God's word. Uh, Lanier's uh, been a great blessing uh, to so many of us uh, in his time that he was here as our church was starting and, and continued to be so in, in, in a distance from us uh, down there in Mobile. Uh, personally, for me as well, always wonderful to see you, Lanier. Great for patience tonight to get some time with you and Leslie for lunch on Friday, too. And just great, great to have you back with us. I love you, brother. It's an incredible joy this morning, and actually, I would say an incredible refreshment uh, to be back with Cross Creek. You know, I was watching the kids go out, and there's a lot of kids, and, and it just began my imagination of, you know, just thinking back to everything that's been going on over the last five years from where we transitioned into South Alabama and how these children are growing up and how y'all have been ministering in so many different ways. And, of course, seeing the children makes me think of all, all of y'all that have served the kids in so many different ways and how they're growing up and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I love seeing everybody, uh, the Hughes, uh, the Selfs, Johnsons, the Peters, the Mara, Seely. So many different people that we we love and we love to be with y'all. And we are so grateful for the encouragement and the blessing that you have been in our life. You know, and the reality is, 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 as years have gone by also, I look back and I realize how grateful specifically I am, of course, for the time to just be able to serve you. But actually for the ways that y'all y'all are formational in our lives, the ways that Chris put up with me. Uh, I was looking back at a sermon that I preached Sometime while I was here, I was, I was just thinking about things from the past. And we look at this as pastors. I had about 7,000 words in a sermon. I want you to know this this morning. I have about 2,200 words in this sermon. God's been bringing me a long way. But, but we, love, uh, we love getting to be back in fellowship with y'all. We also love getting to serve with RUF at South Alabama and and getting to serve on your behalf. Tom was mentioning this morning, one of the beautiful things about for us getting to serve as RUF campus ministers is that we get to go out from all the churches with a call and a commission to bring Jesus to students. To bring Jesus, to bring hope, to bring life. Our students at South, we love them. They're a hard group of students in a lot of ways, not because they're hard, but because life is hard. And one of the things we wrestle with, and this is really is just as this semester's gone through and kind of pulled itself uh, to its end as we look forward to this semester to come and then four years in the past. The, one of the things I would ask that y'all pray for for my students is that you would pray that our students desire more. Sitting with my my incredibly interesting, incredibly fun, small group of guys this past semester. We're going through uh, the Christian life, how to read the Bible, why the church matters, things really basic like that. What does it look like to pray to God? And one of the guys uh, said this. He said, you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. I think maybe if I said that like a little more passionately, we kind of all say, amen, <laughs> right? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And I think for a lot of our students, and maybe it's 
maybe for a lot of y'all, and sometimes, actually I know often for myself, that's what I want the sentiment to be. I'm just going to give enough, and hopefully I can get enough. And our prayer is is that, that they would want more. They would want more. And like C.S. Lewis diagnoses our, desi- our broken desires, that as they want more, they would see that Jesus is the only thing that can meet that desire. I think that's a little bit what's happening in this passage this morning as we look down at Mark 9, a passage that happens immediately after the transfiguration. There's these encounters with Jesus by actually a, 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 a bunch of different groups. And they're encountering Jesus and there's something they want from him, but he's ready to give them more. Let's look at this passage. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 29 of Mark 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing, arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he, was, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they weren't able. And he answered them, A faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, that is, when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell down on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, as often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask that God sustain us through his word. Jesus, how rich and, and how privileged we are that we can feast on the living waters. Or that we can feast and feed, Lord, with the nourishment of a, of a hungry sheep. Jesus, we ask, we ask merely this, Lord, that your word sustain us again. 
that it fill us full. Lord, that we would see you. Lord, and our hungers would be satisfied. Christ Jesus, in your name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Uh, Protectors in front of me. I ran across uh, this painting by Raphael. I don't often use uh, physical illustrations, but I do remember Dax Garrard actually telling me that it really helps to have tangible things to connect into. So, Dax, this is for you. Anyway, I ran across this painting by, by Raphael. Raphael is actually a painting he painted at the end of his life, a Renaissance painter. And, and it's the transfiguration uh, and, and actually the story that we, that we are looking at that, and that I just read. And, and I love the painting partly because in Renaissance painting, you see this in a lot of the kind of religious art of Renaissance painting. As, as you have this, this very obvious contrast of the glory and the radiance, uh, this is a kind of glory. You kind of think of the glory that you think of the temple, that the, that the Ten Commandments and, and where God dwelt with His people. That, that contrast with the brokenness and the frailty and the fear of humanity. Raphael captures actually our story really well in that way. This, this contrast of Jesus, the Savior of the world, and us looking down, us navel-gazing, us fearing, us worrying. What I enjoy about these stories, and I think as Mark draws them together for us, and actually all the Gospels, the Synoptics, do for us. Is that they show Jesus in all his glory. And then they show him encountering and entering into us and our brokenness. As we open this passage, Jesus is coming from the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he encounters a mess. Jesus recognized, declared the Son of God comes and he steps into a mess. The disciples fighting, arguing with the scribes of Israel. And look what happens. Apparently there's a crowd. The crowd that that seemed to be following Jesus, kind of following his wonders. The crowd who is watching and waiting. And you can kind of imagine what they're doing. They're they're waiting to find out what's going to come out of this fight. Why did these disciples not be able to do it? Who's right? What are we supposed to think? And they're they're kind of amazed by everything that's going on. And then Jesus enters in. And everybody's attention shifts. Jesus enters in and everybody encounters wonder. But they're not exactly sure why. We see this by their questions and their actions that they don't know why yet. They see Jesus, but they don't see Jesus, right? They're encountering Christ, but they haven't yet encountered the Christ. So what's the fascination? What's our fascination? Why do we sit? Why do we gather? Why do we follow after Jesus? I think one of the first things I want us to look at this morning, and it's really broadly, and it's one of the perspectives of the story, is it's just what everyone sees in Jesus. What is it that draws us to Jesus? And we see uh, several different things going on. I I think perhaps 
as we think about that, as we see what they don't see in Jesus, maybe we'll actually find who he is for us. There's an illustration. Uh, it's actually a Hindu illustration uh, that's, that, that has been worked with and dealt with. And most pluralistic faiths, actually, this is one of their illustrations for how we're supposed to think about faith and religion. And it's the illustration of, of, of three blind men or however many blind men. And then they've walked into this place and there's an elephant. And some of y'all may have heard this. And somebody asks them, what is it that you see? What is it that's before you? Of course, the first blind man says something like, well, it's, he's feeling on the tusk. It's pointy. It's hard. Yeah. The next man says, uh, well, it seems to be, it seems to be solid, like, like a tree trunk and, and unmovable. And the next man feeling says, you know, it seems to be kind of soft and, you know, he's feeling the belly and, and oddly hairy, right? And the illustration is told that these, these men, this really just to illustrate this, that the differences of perspective and yet all upon one thing. That our perspective so much has often, uh, so often has to do with what we see, but that we don't often see the whole. Actually, as we enter into the story, I think actually, if we can say Jesus is what we are looking for. We actually have a little bit of this going on, or a lot of this. Everyone putting a hand on, seeing a little bit of who Jesus is. But everybody unsure of what they're actually encountering. Mark tells it this way. He he first shows us the disciples and the scribes, which seem to be not really actually that far off from each other. Notice. They appear to be arguing back and forth. Uh, some, some, the disciples saying, yeah, we were able to do miracles. And, and, and the scribes saying something. I mean, we can kind of imagine their conversation. Now, y'all are totally fakers. This is not real. And the disciples kind of going back and forth. Yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. You know, a little bit of back and forth like our kids. Sometimes we as spouses do, right? Both of them holding on actually to something similar. Both of them holding on to the miraculous. Both of them fascinated by the simple wonder. Jesus, sitting there with his disciples, encounters them again. And you imagine them with him. And they're a little frustrated. You see, Jesus had actually sent them out. And they had been performing miracles, performing wonders. And people were coming, coming after them. And people were coming to Jesus. And then now Jesus has cut them off. You can kind of imagine them as Jesus comes in into their argument. He's like, Jesus, why did you do this to us? Jesus, you cut us off. That was so embarrassing. Why couldn't we cast this one out? We could cast out all the others. Give us the next level of power, Jesus, and we'll show them. After all, Jesus, it's for you. What do they see in Jesus? I think here's what we... What they see in Jesus and that we sometimes are looking for in Jesus. They see somebody who's going to make them great. That's what it seems like they're looking for. They see somebody who can make them more powerful, more special, more strong than the scribes. Or the scribes themselves, they're looking for a Christ who will make Israel great again, right? 
They see Jesus, but they see him for who they want them to be. Then there's the crowds. The crowds are a little bit different. They love the show, right? They love the wonder. There apparently is a crowd of people wherever Jesus is going. And it's kind of like maybe a good TV show or maybe one of those things that hits Facebook with like a massive following. And it's really interesting. It's kind of like, well, we're going to follow this for a little while. You know, this this is this is the happening thing. You know, and everybody's telling everybody, man, you have to check out, you know, this. Yeah, there's just kind of a fascination, a wonder, like, let's just let's just let's just go along for the ride for a little while. The crowd is just checking him out. Man, you got to check Jesus out. Jesus is the new show. He's the new iPhone, the new self-driving car. He's incredible. But he's not much more than that. He's the moral teacher to listen to today. But notice this. This is how we know that's actually how they treat them. Because when trial comes, which is not too far after in Mark, what do the crowds do? The crowds, they're gone. Actually, they're not gone. They're gone from following Jesus. But actually, they come back to Jesus with condemnation. They turn against him. Then there's a father and the son. And I want you to notice both of them as we look at this passage. Notice the father. He's actually stuck in the middle of of what seems like this circumstance that's developed through the discussion of the scribes and and Jesus' disciples. He's stuck in the middle. But where has he come from? He's come from desperation. He's come in undoneness. Because his child is sick, but spiritually and physically. And I want you to imagine what it's like. Imagine what it was like for when him, when his boy was a child, presume, presumably he's, he's a good bit older now and he's dealt with this for a long time. His son has had seizures. He has been deaf and mute. He's had to watch his t- child in anguish. And not only that, but every word that he might utter in comfort and in love to his child was never heard. His son can never hear him. His son can never speak back a thank you. His son can never speak back, Father, I'm glad you're with me. Sometimes I think it's easy to look at Jesus and his miracles. And we see the wonder, but we miss the desperation. We miss the desperation that he had nothing And the father, he's heard about Jesus. And he doesn't know him totally, but he comes to him. He's come searching him out. And he says this to Jesus. If you can, heal my son. It's interesting. He's not firm in faith, right? He's not sure of what Jesus is going to do. He's actually ready I mean, you can kind of imagine when you're saying, if you can, he, he's ready to go home with a sick child. But he's also at the point of desperation where he has come to Jesus and he's saying, this is it. You know, it's actually kind of interesting. I think it's maybe the, the parables are illustrated through these three different perspectives. You know, this, the seeds that are cast onto different soil and, and the different ways that they grow up or are rejected. And, and, and then what does it look like for them to grow? 
You know, some are, they have their plan, they're ready to, the disciples are just ready to, to, to get energized, to get excited, to sprout up. But they're being challenged and, and, and they're, now they have questions. The scribes, of course, burned up, that they're burned up by Jesus being with them. There's nothing for them to grow or to find life in. But then we have the soil of soft and tender desperation. Y'all, I think this is where we need to look this morning because Jesus, Jesus, as he steps in this passage, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed, what's remarkable about him, what's remarkable about this passage, isn't how anybody sees Jesus. It's actually how Jesus sees us. It's the second perspective of this passage. What does Jesus actually see in everyone? Jesus is not ignorant. Jesus is not ignorant. When he comes down off the mountain, he knows what is going on. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus as this kind of glorious innocent, that he, he doesn't know what's going on. He's unaware of things in the world. He doesn't know how real life works. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and we just think of him as this kind of glowing, transcendent figure. That's kind of what our imaginations capture, that would have no idea the pain and the suffering, the anguish, the fear, the frustration, and the worry that he's encountering. We think of him kind of like, you know, the 50s kind of good kid. You know, he's just, he's just a nice all-around guy that doesn't relate to normal people who, who have a hard time in life. I think pastors, myself, I actually think missionaries, we can perpetuate this idea. Because we think that's what we need to be. And sometimes when you're here on Sunday, right? We need to kind of, we think that where our spirituality is going is that we kind of need to be glorious, radiantly, other and separate and, and actually unrelatable. We perpetuate things. But as Jesus comes down from the mount... I think we find something else. Jesus is holy other, but he's also with us. Jesus is holy other. Jesus is transcendent. Jesus is the son of God, but he's the son of God who is incarnate. He's the son of God who has come to be bloodied, to be a mess with his people, to be bruised, to be tired. And to be that with us. When he comes down and he finds a fighting and unfaithful people, what Jesus doesn't do is walk away. We'd probably run away, right? We, we step into mess like this, we'd run away. Jesus goes and he says, this is where my ministry is. Jesus goes and he makes his ministry with them. He is not Prince Charming in his, on his horse. He is God incarnate, humbling himself, despising the shame, and making his home with the faithless people. He knows the scribes. He knows their unbelief. He knows their doubt. And it's interesting because if you notice, in all his encounters with the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he will never give them what they want, right? He never gives them what they want. He won't give them a God of their own designs. He will not give them a God who is about their own plans. He also knows his disciples pretty well, too. He spent a lot of time with them. 
He's traveled with them. He's equipped and he's commissioned them. And he knows their struggle in faith too. He knows his people who walk with him. He knows our unsureness. He knows they want to do important things for the kingdom. And actually similarly, he won't just give them what they want. He won't just give them power for power's sake. He won't give them an I told you so message to go back to the scribes with. Instead, and and you see this in Jesus' statements, look at what he says. He laments. Those are laments. Those are not condemnations. Those are woes. Those are sorrows. Those are feelings for his people. He laments. He grieves with them in their distrust. He grieves with them in their bad decisions. Parents totally get this. You watch and you love and you direct and you care for your children. And they decide to do something different. And right, there's, there's the part of parenting that is chastisement. That is, I want this. You need to do this. But there's also the part of... Oh, I sorrow for you. I sorrow for your brokenness. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is is actually lamenting, why do you not trust me? And then the crowds. Jesus, Jesus is always interesting with the crowds. He's actually pretty evasive. You see this through the Gospels. He's very evasive. At times, even telling people when he's done one, he said, don't tell anybody. Basically telling them, I don't just want people to come for the wonder. And the crowds here, it's interesting. Uh, You know, it it seems like they kind of gather to him and then he pulls back. And then when the crowd's starting to come again, he actually kind of hurries up and does the miracle. He's saying, oh, the crowds are coming. And the way it reads is actually that Jesus is doing the miracle before they get there. He's not going to do what they expect. He's not going to give them the show. And I think we have to ask, if Jesus is not giving us what we want, then what is Jesus doing? If the kingdom of God is not about God just giving us what we want, then what is God doing with the kingdom of God? We're gathered here for missions, right? Around God's heart for the world. About God's heart for all of his people to see the world redeemed, to see people embrace and love and find who they are in him. Why doesn't he just give us what we want so that then we can trust him? Why has he not come to make us happy? Now, you need to be able to ask this question, actually. We need to be able to ask this question if you aren't asking it already. Again, our kids, they ask us this all the time. Yeah. Why aren't you why aren't you doing what makes us happy? The difference is, and kids, y'all need to know this about your parents. Is that your parents are asking the same question. We just when you grow up, you're just more you're just more clever. Right? You're a little more protective. You don't want people to know that, so you you pursue you you find the thing that you're gonna pursue in order to make you happy, and you just set your trajectory that way. You know, it can be really simple things, right? Like, you know, promotion. Or, or it can be, uh, you know, more difficult things. You know, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I can to, to make my child successful this, to, to prove that I'm a good parent. 
I think it's actually kind of our unawareness of, uh, uh, of our struggle with this question that, that leads us to maybe sometimes silly church fights. You see, what happens with, is when you're asking this question, but you're not, you don't know it and you're not bringing it to Jesus. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like the disciples. You just end, you end up in arguments because you, you end up just pursuing what you think is going to be best for you. You know, and so we get to the church and Cross Creek has the blessing of not having to worry about this. You know, and you worry about what what color cushions you're going to get. Right. Yeah, these lovely, comfortable uh, benches that we get to enjoy that we've been enjoying for a lot of years. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus is frustrated and he laments, rightly so, because but he doesn't settle the argument. He doesn't appease the crowd. I want you to see what he does. He sees a boy. He sees a father. And he has compassion on them. And Jesus believes his heavenly father and he heals him. The father's final plea is so interesting. And it's one of those those things that... If you're like me, you're so glad this is part of Scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. Y'all, but I think Jesus, but I think Jesus' reply to the Father is so much fuller than we might realize. That is, Jesus is not just saying, your faith is enough. In fact, actually, when you read Matthew's reading of the same passage, there's another part of the story where, where Jesus actually says, it makes this analogy afterwards, he's like, it's kind, he kind of has the faith of a mustard seed. That's where he tells that little parable. It's actually right in connection with this. Very small faith. No, actually, instead, Jesus to the Father and for the and to the Father and for the Son, he believes. Jesus has faith for his people. He trusts his heavenly Father. And when he does, he gives us this. He gives to us the faith we fail to have. And the ends that come with it. And a mountain is moved. A boy is healed. A boy is given new life. The language actually for when it looks like he's dead and then he comes back to life is actually resurrection language. That he is raised to life. Jesus changes the physical order of the world. So what's our problem with desire? Close with this thought. As we come, and when it comes to missions, I think one of the things that I struggle with, and I wonder you're in the same place, is that we pray a big game, right? We pray a big game. We declare to God great things that we want Him to do. But we struggle because we can hardly believe God is real unless He gives us those things that we determine. We approach missions, I think, sometimes like the scribes and like the Pharisees. God, do something awesome for us. And by that we mean, 
Put us, this is really what we mean, put us at the center of your work. Let us have your glory. We believe. We believe if you'll do that. And here's actually what I think our heart for missions lacks. It's the humility of the Father's prayer. Because he doesn't just say, I believe. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what missions lacks in our prayer, in our working, in our laboring, it, it lacks the, desperate, the gospel desperation that confesses to God that our best longings, our best works, our best efforts are not good enough. That even if we bring God all of our zeal, all of our fervor, if we do not bring Him our desperation, and our perpetual need, and our lack of steadfast reliance that this is God's mission, that this is God's work, we will never find comfort. Our passions can be shallow passions. Our passions can be shallow passions because they're not wrapped around the knowledge and the hope and the desperate need of God. Our zeal can be zeal that is really desire for self-glory and accomplishment. Too often we use this weak passion and this weak desire to keep us from the deep reality of living in a broken world that's actually in a desperate situation. And by desperate, here's what I mean. I mean inescapable. I mean no hope. I mean powerless. I mean futile. And here's why finally I think the, this passage hinges on the Father's word. words. Because what we finally see from the Father is what Jesus asks of his disciples. You'll see the disciples said, why can we not do it? And Jesus says this. He says pretty simply, he's like, this one can't be cast out by anything but prayer. Again, Matthew, in response, he says, because you lack faith. That is, that the centerpiece of our prayer is actually faith and rest in God. But, but Jesus doesn't pray. Did y'all see that? Jesus doesn't pray to cast out this demon. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't pray. He simply speaks and the demon is done. The demon, one last effort, one last effort upon the boy and he's cast out. See, here's what I think we see. It's actually that the father is praying to Christ finally. The father has requested Jesus. The father submits his fears and his frailty to the faithful and the powerful one of God, Jesus. And Jesus hears him. God will suffer to bring us to hopelessness. He'll suffer to bring us to hopelessness in order that we would finally and only hope in him. That we would hope in his heart. That we would hope in his faith. That we would hope in his grace. That we would hope only in his glory. See, here's what missions needs. Missions needs Jesus. Cross Creek needs Jesus. Lake Cyrus right now needs Jesus. 
mobile. It needs Jesus. My students, they need Christ. Because we don't save the world. We don't save our neighbors. We don't save all those things. Jesus does. Because his life and his story and his heart is set on us. Let's pray. Jesus, how sweet and how full and how hopeful the gospel is. Lord, for we taste and touch and feel around, and the whole world tastes and touch and feels around looking for something. And sometimes we get taste of you. Sometimes we get little taste, God, but we have not seen you. God, what we pray is that you would reveal yourself. That you would make yourself known. God, to us, to the world, to our friends, to our families. God, for your sake, and you're going to pray. Amen.